The scripture reading is from John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We are starting this week off in a new book, although I would say in so many ways what we are doing is building on what we have been doing for not just the last 12 weeks as we walked through the Minor Prophets and we anticipated the coming of Christ, but also as we went through the book of Hebrews and we celebrated who Christ is. And so now here in John, we are to see from his own words exactly who he is. Some of you were paying attention this week to the news that a certain currency went from being valued in the pennies to being valued at one point over $1,100. And everyone suddenly wanted to know, what is a Bitcoin? How many of you have even heard of a Bitcoin? If you were paying attention this week, you heard about it because the currency has been going up and up except when it's not. And like every currency, and this is not an economics lesson, we're not interested in economics this morning, but like every currency, it's based on faith, right? if, If any of you still carry dollar bills in your wallet, a few of us probably still do. Most of us just carry plastic now, but that plastic represents dollar bills. We understand when we pull out that dollar bill that 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 is a faith that we are placing in our government that they will stand behind it, for better or worse, right? That's what we're doing. We're just simply saying we believe what is standing behind this dollar bill. Now, part of what I've read through the week as the currency, Bitcoin, has gone up and down and up and down from a high of of $1,100-ish to this morning, I understand it's valued somewhere around six eighty. Who knows, in another week, it may be valued back in pennies again. I've read stories about how people have discovered that they have thrown away a hard drive 
You see, a Bitcoin, I have no idea what this means, okay? But neither do most of you. So we're going to go on this journey together. It is what's called a cryptocurrency. I don't know what that means. All that I know that that means is there is no coin. It's something that you store on your computer. And I read one story about a man this week who had thousands of these on a hard drive that he accidentally threw away. And that hard drive was now valued, if I recall correctly, around $750 million that he had thrown away. This morning, what's it worth? Who knows? But the question has come up, if our dollar bill is based on faith in the federal government, who originated the Bitcoin and what is our faith in? And the answer is no one knows. So I don't know about you, even though I've been reading stories about people this week who have been negotiating with their employer that they might be paid in Bitcoin, I'm not quite ready to go there. Because I don't have faith in a currency that I don't understand even more than the average currency that I don't understand, right? Much less in a currency that's established by who we don't know. This morning, I want to say to you that people do far more than place their faith in something like a currency that we don't understand. They, they do this in ways far more critical than their finances. They bank life and death and eternity without really ever examining the object of their faith. If your faith this morning is in some idea of a God, what is the foundation of that belief? I talk to so many people and they'll tell me ideas that they have about what God is or what God is not. And my question is always, what is the foundation of your belief? And typically the answer goes something like this. I just believe. I just have faith. And while Oprah may think that as long as you have enough faith, it doesn't matter. It's the, it's the Tinkerbell version of faith, you know. As long as you have enough faith, then anything can happen, right? That faith somehow itself is the thing. But I want to say to you this morning, we would not do this in any other area of our life. Why would we do this when it comes to something so critical as talking about life and death and eternity? I can believe with all of my heart that I can fly, But if I jump, and I'm not going to do it because my vertical is measured in the inches, maybe. If I jump, it will demonstrate I can't fly. It doesn't matter how much I believe. Even if all of you clapped Tinkerbell style, I could not fly. Nothing would happen. Why would we base our faith in something that has no foundation? So if you have this idea of God, does it stand on solid ground? If your faith this morning is in science, are you comfortable staking eternity on your finite ability to understand the universe around you? Are you really comfortable saying that there is no God when your eyes cannot see further than these walls? When you cannot examine more than a telescope or a microscope puts in front of you. I hear people all the time talk about their beliefs by saying, I just have faith, as if that mere act becomes enough. John is going to say to us, 
through this book, he's going to say, it is not enough to merely believe. It's not enough to merely believe. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, how much do you truly understand? If you would say, my faith is in Jesus Christ, what does that mean? What Jesus do you believe in? How far does that go? What is your understanding of who he is or who he is not? And John is going to say to us, it is not enough to merely say, I am a Christian. It's not enough to merely say, I believe in Jesus, because what does that mean? If your faith in Christ, is your faith in Christ or in some idea or tradition or institution that carries the name of Christ? Are you counting on the fact that you belong to the right church? That you have the right heritage? That your parents were sincere in their devotion to God? That your grandparents carried some name? Or are you acquainted with the one you claim as the foundation of your hope? Non-Christian. If your faith is not in Christ, then what is it in? My experience has been that most people never examine that question. They never stop to ask the question because they do not want to ponder the answer. They don't want to think about the importance of the question. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what Christ are you rejecting? Are you rejecting the Christ that you heard about at some church? Are you rejecting the Christ that you've seen in someone else that called themselves a Christian? Or are you rejecting the Christ of the Bible? So Christian, we need to think about what Christ are we accepting? Non-Christian, what Christ are you rejecting? And non-Christian, I would say this, is what you are placing your faith in. And make no mistake, you are surely placing your faith in something. Is it really firmer ground? Or do you just like that it makes no demands of you? You see, a parachute harness, it makes demands of us. We have to buckle it around us. When you get into your car, your seatbelt makes demands of you. You have to bring it around you and it holds you in place. But if you leap from the airplane and gravity is having its effect on you, you will be thankful for that harness. You'll be thankful that it's there to hold you. So are you merely rejecting Christ because of the demands that it places on you that are good demands? John tells us what his purpose is in this gospel. He tells us in John 20 verses 30 through 31. I'm not going to ask you to turn over there. It's going to be on the screen for you. But he tells us specifically what his motivation is in writing this gospel John 20, 30, and 31, he says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. What is he telling us? He's saying, look, you and I know that you already have Matthew, Mark, Luke. You already have those Gospels. They're out there. You and I know stories as those who lived during the day of Christ. That there are stories that aren't even in those Gospels. We, we know that there are sto- those stories are out there. I'm not trying to record everything. John is recording certain things 
for a purpose. And what is that purpose? Look at verse 31. But these things that he has chosen to write, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He tells us, right, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Not just that you may believe in Jesus, but that you may believe certain things about Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Everything that he's going to tell us is driving us to that conclusion, but not for no reason. Because he says, look, that by believing you may have life in his name. That by believing you may have life in his name. So again, I would say, Christian, is your belief such that you have life in his name? Are you believing in the Jesus of Scripture? John wrote about 65 to 90 AD, which makes him the latest of the Gospels. He most likely wrote from the city of Ephesus. And he wrote with the idea in mind that there were other Gospels there. Other Gospels that recorded chronologically, that recorded details. John leaves many things out like any well-fashioned argument, so that everything that is there would drive to one point. That Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It's often been said of John that it is a pool so shallow that a child can wade in and so deep that an elephant can swim in. You could spend your life studying the book of John. Martin Luther was even given to say that if he only had the gospel of John and the letter to the Romans, that you would have all of the truth of Christianity contained in those two books alone. So the significance of John cannot be overstated. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 18, and we're going to move through it quickly, not because there's not much here, but because there is so much here. John 1, 1 through 18, is the prologue of the book. He's going to introduce ideas that he's going to move on to that are going to have great importance in everything else that he says. One commentator called these verses the foyer of the gospel. You walk in and you can see the rooms and you you know what's there. And he points you to those things. And if you find yourself this morning frustrated that we don't go into everything that's here, hold on tight, stay with us. We're going to get there as we walk through this great book. So John chapter 1 Verses 1 through 18 tells us that Jesus has come. And so the question becomes, what is the significance of Christ's coming? Many people might ask if God speaks. And what John begins with is an expression that God has spoken. That God has expressed himself in Christ. That's the first thing that I want you to understand this morning is that God has expressed himself in Christ. It is the very foundation point from which John begins. When John sits down to try to discern what am I going to say about Christ, the first thing that I'm going to say is that he is the expression of God. 
He is God speaking out into the world so that the world might know who he is and what he is like. So the question must be, who is Christ? What does Christianity actually teach about Jesus Christ? You see, Muslims say he was a good prophet. Jewish people would say he was a good rabbi who has been misrepresented by his followers. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, no matter what they tell you when they knock on their door, would say that while he is divine, he is not God. He may be a God, but he is not God in the same sense that the God the Father is God. And yet John here at the beginning, look, John chapter 1 Verses 1 and 2, I want you to see how it begins. He starts with three words that should sound familiar to you. John starts with, in the beginning. In the beginning. I want you to understand and I want you to see this. Uh, So if you would, keep a finger there. Keep a marker there. Keep your program there. Something else. Turn back to Genesis. All the way back to the beginning. It's not hard to find. Genesis chapter 1. Pass the table of contents. Pass the preface if you've got one. Here we go. Genesis chapter 1. God's word starts in this same way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you need to understand this first. If we're to ask the question, who is this Christ? John wants you to understand from the very Three words that this word that he's going to speak of, this Christ that he's going to point you to, is eternal. This this phrase, in the beginning. In the Septuagint and in the Greek, it's it's two words. It's in arche, in the very beginning. It means before anything happened. It cannot be understood apart from eternity. There was no point of time that happened before in the beginning. And so when John starts and he points us to this in the beginning, this is what he is saying about Jesus. He is saying that he is eternal. He existed when nothing existed but the necessary being. Plato would talk about the the necessary being, the unmoved mover, that is God. You see, if, if all things are here and all things exist because of something else that came before it, you're here because your mother and your father existed. This building is here because before it there were, I don't know, what do you make sheetrock out of? I have no idea what you make sheetrock out of. But because there are other things that existed before it, everything existed, everything exists because of something else before it. But as we follow that line back, there must be one at the beginning that exists by necessity. Why am I referencing Plato? Because John was speaking from both a Jewish and a Greek context, and you would, be, you would miss much of what he's saying if you don't understand that. So he says, in the beginning, this is the one that was before anything else was. And then he says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. If we turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. What, does, what do we see God doing? We see God speaking. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke. 
He spoke into darkness and there was light. And so here we see in John him saying the same thing. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning God spoke. He expressed himself. He expressed himself in a person that he calls the word. Now to a Jewish person, the word was an accomplished act. As soon as you said something, it was considered done. Your word was your bond. If I said I was going to do something, then I was going to do that thing. In Greek culture, they had an idea of the word of God speaking. Again, Plato said to his students, now Plato's saying this about 350 years before Christ was born. And here's what Plato said to his students. He says, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. This idea of logos was not just important in the Jewish world. It was important in the Greek world as well. That there would be a word that was spoken that would give meaning to everything else. That would explain the rest. You see, when you look through the Old Testament, you see many things about the Word. You see that it included God's powerful activity in creation. When you look at Genesis 1, all that you see is God speaking and it's accomplished. When you look through the Old Testament, when you find books like Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel 33, 7. When God says, so you, son of man... I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall go and give them warning for me. God speaks in revelation. He reveals himself in word. That's why you are subjected to listening to me or someone like me. Because God did not choose to reveal himself in a movie. Or in a picture. Or an interpretive dance. Thank the Lord. God didn't choose to express himself in those ways. I don't look good in tights. But he expressed himself in a word. And that was not by accident. That was not accidental. So it was a word of revelation. It was a word of creation. It was a word of deliverance. Isaiah 55, 11. He says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish all that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it out. When God sends out a word, it accomplishes his deliverance. It accomplishes what he determines that it should accomplish. So John and the early Christian church chose this word, word, to describe Christ that you might understand and I might understand that he is the expression of God. But he wants us to understand as well that the expression is not less than the one that sends it out. You see, if, if, if I tell you to think of an elephant right now, you would think of an elephant. Many of you are doing so right now. Is that idea equal to the real thing? Of course not. Of course not. That's a thought that exists between your ears. It's not the real thing. But John wants us to understand that he was, as the expression, equal. So not only is he eternal, he is equal. He is co-eternal with the Father, co-equal with the Father. Because he says, look, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Now, not to pick on those people that come and knock on your door, your Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon friends and neighbors, love them, talk to them about this, but talk to them about this. Because when they open their, their translation of Scripture, and it says, and the word was a God, and they'll say to you, look, in the Greek, there is no definite article, there's no the, that the word was the God. I want you to understand that what they are saying is true. There is no definite article. There is the, the word was the God. And that matters not at all. Because it would make no sense whatsoever in what he's about to say for him to say the word was the God when what he's saying is the word was equal to God the Father. He could not be the one only God if there is God the Father as well. Now, don't get lost in the weeds here, okay? Don't get lost in the weeds. What he's saying is we are the same. That's what John is going to say. We are the same. But you cannot understand this any other way. No self-respecting Greek scholar would say that that could be translated in any way other than the idea that he is saying that the word is equal with God. So when God spoke, he spoke, he expressed himself in a way in this one that's called the word to say that he is co-eternal with the father, that he is co equal with the Father. This is the Christ that we say that we believe in. Now, some of you will say, well, I've watched the Discovery Channel and I've watched the History Channel and I know, I know that his followers made this stuff up 200 years later. That this was all stuff that was made up after the fact. That might sound good except for the fact that we have copies of the Gospel of John that have been found in Egypt, that date to as early as 125 A.D. Now, you may say that's 90 years after Christ died. You're right. But I need you to remember that there was no FedEx. There was no information superhighway. Things traveled at the speed of the foot. So if we have Gospels of John in Egypt that traveled to Egypt... In 90 years, we know that John was very, very early, certainly too early, for people to be making things up about Jesus that were not true. So, God has expressed himself. John does not begin with the virgin birth or the ministry of John the Baptist to point to the first activity of Christ. He points to the Word. He points to creation. And so we've already talked about this some, but I'm going to deal with this. Secondly, I want you to understand this. Not just that God has expressed himself through the Word, but I want you to understand, secondly, that God has expressed himself through the Word in creation. The first thing that John is going to say is, look, this has happened before. He's going to draw a parallel between what Jesus did in creation to what Jesus is going to do in recreation. I want you to see it with me. I want you to understand, secondly, God has expressed himself through, in Christ through creation. Look at John 1, 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. He's just making himself clear. All things were made through him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. What is he saying? He's saying that not only was he there, but when God created, Christ was the agent that accomplished it. Christ was the one that accomplished it. This is not peculiar to John. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. If you've been around for more than a few months... You may remember Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. God has spoken through Christ in creation. What do we see that he has accomplished in that? Well, let me invite you again. Hopefully you did what I didn't do and you kept your finger in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see these things. Genesis 1-1 again. Many people misunderstand Genesis 1-1 and they think that Genesis 1-1 is a summary for what follows. That's not the reality of what's going on here. Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to understand, this was pre-seven days, okay? Whatever you believe about creation, if you believe it's a literal 24-hour days or whatever, I want you to understand, this is before the seven days, Jesus spoke into existence the heavens and the earth. And it says in verse 2, and I want you to see this, The earth was without form and void. Those two words you need to understand together mean this. It was chaos. It was empty of life and it was chaos. And what does he go on to say? And darkness was over the face of the deep. And darkness was over the face of the deep. So I want you to get this picture because before God speaks Jesus into into accomplish the work of creation before God sends him out as the word that accomplishes creation, I want you to understand the nature of where things were. They were dark, they were lifeless, and it was chaotic. What does it mean to be in the dark? I want you to understand that what John is doing, I believe, is he's not just reminding you of what the world was before Jesus created But he's painting for you a picture of what the human heart is after Genesis 3. Of what the human heart is because of sin. Like creation before the seven days, that it was dark and lifeless and chaotic. What does it mean to be in the dark? It means that you would be without vision, without destination, without purpose or truth. In the word, chaotic. What does it mean to be dead? If something is dead, it is no longer able to function according to the purpose for which it was created. 
Now, I pray I don't offend some of you. I'm a dog lover too, and you know that if you hang around here. But some of you who are roughly my age, you may remember listening to the radio when you were young. There is a program that I like to listen to out of Shreveport. If I took the antenna just right and I angled it just right all the way from the little town of Bernice, I could pick up from Shreveport the Dr. Demento Show. Do any of you remember this? The Dr. Demento show was exactly what you would think. It was crazy songs. And one of my favorites was a song called Dead Puppies Aren't Much Fun. He said, they don't come when you call. They don't, you know, they don't chase the ball. I, I know, I know, it's wrong, it's wrong. I just painted an offensive picture in all of your minds. But what I want you to understand is this. Dead things don't accomplish the purpose that they exist for. And what he is saying here is that... Now, that's all any of you are going to remember anymore. YouTube it later. Don't think about it now. I want to say this to you this morning. Do you sometimes feel adrift, chaotic, without a sense of destination or purpose beyond the next paycheck, beyond the next Friday night? beyond the next relationship or vacation or whatever else, are you living for those things? Those things are your purpose. Those things are what you hang out in front of you. Then you are experiencing what John is pointing to. The natural condition of the human heart impacted by sin. It's dark. It's purposeless. It's without life. And so I want you then to understand that so that you can understand this. If God spoke and Jesus went into creation and he created all that we see around us, then I want you to understand that when we fell, when this became the description of our hearts, that God spoke again. And Jesus entered in again to accomplish the very same Work. And so I want you to understand, number three, God has expressed himself in Christ, not merely through creation, but through recreation as well. God has expressed himself in Christ through recreation. Look with me at verse 6. He says, there was a man sent from God. If you were with us last week when we looked at Malachi and we saw the coming of John the Baptist, you understand what he's saying here. God sent him. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, here he's not called John the Baptist because there's no need. The only other John, John the son of Zebedee, is our author, and he never refers to himself by name. One of the beautiful things about this book is that he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And so he needs no description. He's talking here about John the Baptist. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. He's already said to us before that... that, Uh, Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And now we see him becoming these same things, not in creating the world, but in recreating lost people. I remember once when I was a child, 
getting lost in the woods. And I lived in the country. And if you live in the country, you understand what I mean when I say country dark. It's cloudy and there's no lights. And all I could see was just a couple of feet in front of me and all around me was pine trees and nothing else. And I was well and truly panicked. I had no sense. I may be an eighth Cherokee. It didn't matter. I was lost. I was not finding my way. And I stumbled around in the dark from one tree to the next trying to get a sense of where I was. And then I heard laughter. And I knew this. I knew that I was lost in the woods just beyond our church. I did what I wasn't supposed to do and I went over to play in the woods with my friends. And at the very least, I was lost. I didn't know where they were. But I heard a voice. I heard laughter. And I began to stumble towards it. And then through the trees, I began to see a light. It was the light of the, the porch over the foyer to the church. I could see a light and I could hear voices. Now, they weren't looking for me. But just hearing the, the voices and seeing the light gave me a place to go. And I want you to understand that this is what it is saying about Christ. That while no one came looking for me that night, God has come looking for you. I want you to look at verse 9 with me. I want you to see a few very important words. Because he's going to describe him in verse 9 as the true light. The true light. Not merely in the sense that he is real, but in the sense that he is ultimate. He is light in the ultimate sense of the word. The true light, which gives light to everyone. I want you to understand, John is not teaching that all people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. He is not saying that it will give light to everyone that exists. It's not saying that, not without exception, but without distinction. It is the light for all people. Not everyone will believe, but everyone may believe. Not without exception, but without distinction. And, and what is this light doing? It was coming into the world. The light was coming into the world. Now I want you to understand what he's saying. The world has an overwhelmingly negative connotation in the book of John. When you hear the world, you should think of a wicked place because that is the connotation that John wants you to have. That the light went into a very dark, very sinful world. All of you know John 3.16, every single one of you. And when you hear John 3.16, for God so loved the world. What you think is, ah, the greatness of God, that he would love everyone. But while that may be true, that is not what John is trying to convey. He is trying to convey the greatness of the love of God, that he would even love the wicked, sinful world. This is the situation in which Jesus comes and because the darkness is now not merely in creation, but in the hearts of humans, the word entered not only into creation, but into flesh. He did so that he might bring light and life. Look at verse 14. 
It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, at creation, he entered into darkness and he created light. He created the universe. He created the sun and the moon and the stars and he created all of those things. But now the problem is not that creation is dark, but that the hearts of men are dark. And so he enters into our flesh to accomplish the very same work, that he might bring the light and that he might bring life. This is John's purpose and ours as we go through this great book. That you might see Jesus. That you might understand what his purpose is. And I'm almost done, but if Christ is as great as John is going to say and has said that he is, then will everyone believe? Look at verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In chapter 3, John's going to tell us exactly why, and I won't belabor this point, but he's going to say that because they were wicked, and Jesus was the light, they did not like the light. Wicked things like darkness. B.F. Westcott, you don't need to know who that is. I just want to give citation. He said this, The light which reveals the world does not make the darkness, but it makes the darkness felt. If the sun is hidden, all is shadow. Though we call that shadow only which is contrasted with the sunlight. For the contrast seems to intensify that which is, however, left just what it was before. See, before Jesus entered into the world, perhaps before Jesus entered into your frame of reference. Now, I know almost everyone in this room, I know that you've heard the gospel before. But before God spoke Jesus into the world to be the incarnate Son, we were in darkness. And as the light, He shines light and exposes. He doesn't make the darkness, He just makes the darkness felt. You are nothing other than what you were before you became aware of Jesus Christ. But like the light and the darkness, you cannot ignore the light. It does not make you other than what you were before. It just reveals what you were before. So then are we without hope? He came into the world that he might, might express God through our recreation. Look at verse 12. Almost done. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. I want you to understand these are not two separate acts. The second clause is to explain the first. How do we receive him? How do we come to faith in Jesus Christ? How do we receive the light and the life into ourselves? Well, we believe in his name. This is the gospel. 
If you're here this morning and perhaps for some reason you've slept all the other times I've talked about the gospel, I want you to understand it very plainly and very clearly. Here is what he is saying. The way that you receive the light, the way that you receive life is that you trust in his name. That means that I say that I'm going to stand before God one day and, and, and my excuse, my defense is not going to be my own name, my own character, my own goodness. My defense is going to be His name, His goodness, His character. And my trust is completely there. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, that is what we are inviting you to do. That you might believe in His name. Now, he makes the point so that we would understand. Look what he does. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Christian, why are you saved if you are saved? Does it have anything to do with you? John says to us, it doesn't. It is God. It is the will of God that saved you. Non-Christian, I would just simply ask, why would you run from such a God? Why would you run from such a Christ? Now, when we seek to understand why they are saved, look at verses 14 and 15. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. What did John see when he said those words? He wasn't speaking chronologically. He wasn't speaking naturally. He was Jesus' older cousin, and he says, but he, he came before me. I see the glory of this one. Why do we believe? Why do we place our faith in such a Jesus? Because we have seen his glory. God opened our eyes to see him for what he is. And if you're here this morning and you don't know what I'm talking about, my prayer for you this morning is that God would open your eyes that you might see Him. And look what He does. And with this I'm done. Look at verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What's He saying? From His fullness. He was full. He's God. He has everything. And from that same fullness, we receive grace upon grace. What does that mean? That means overflowing grace. What confidence that I, can I have as a Christian that I am saved because I am the object of God's overflowing, abundant grace again and again and again. So non-Christian, do you think that you have found yourself this morning in a place that God and His grace is not sufficient for you? Christian, do you think that God is somehow, you've reached a point that God has said, no, no more, I'm, I'm ashamed of you. I have no more grace for you. You've crossed a line. 
Into those thoughts I would interject John 1.16. Grace upon grace from his fullness. Would you pray with me?